Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is from Exodus chapter 20, the first giving of the ten, the ten words. I'm reading verse 15. Thou shalt not steal. Let's pray together. Almighty God our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ that he gave himself for us. We thank you that we have been called to give ourselves for one another, to give of our talents and our wealth to build your kingdom. We thank you for that great privilege that we have to serve you in this way. We pray that you would teach us how to manage our property and our goods, all the blessings that you give us in a way that honors and pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our previous studies of the ten words, we've noticed that the ten words are divided into two sets of five commandments. Commandments one through five go together. Commandments six through ten go together. And you can see that by just perusing the page, Exodus 20, and looking at the difference between the style of the first five commandments and the style of the second five commandments. Each of the first five commandments mentions the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh doesn't appear at all in the second half of the Decalogue. Each of the first five commandments has some kind of explanation attached to it, some reason why Israel should obey the commandment. But there are no reasons given in the second half of the Decalogue. Each of the commandments in the first half of the Decalogue is very long. Many of the commandments in the second half of the Decalogue are only two words, like our text this morning, Exodus 20, verse 15, is simply two words in the Hebrew, don't steal. And these two sets of five commandments each begin with a commandment that heads up that set. The first five commandments are headed by the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And all of them are about one form or another of idolatry. The second five commandments are headed by the sixth commandment, the sixth word, which is, thou shalt not kill. And all of the second set of five commandments are various kinds of murder that are prohibited. Actual murder, the murder of a marriage relationship, the murder of somebody by uh, attacks against their property, the murder of their good name with false witness, the desire to murder the image of God that is covetousness. Those two lead commandments, the first and the sixth, are linked up. The reason why murder is wrong is because it's an assault on the image of God that each one of us bears. When you hurt or kill somebody, another human being, you're making an indirect attack on God himself because you're attacking one of his images. All of the second half of the Decalogue has to do with various forms of murder. That may not be obvious to us when we think about stealing. We don't think about our things as part of ourselves or extensions of our person. We think, of course, somebody who attacks another human being is attacking the image of God. But if somebody takes my property, well, at least they didn't hurt me. They're just taking my stuff. And there is a distinction like that that's built into the law, built into Scripture. Scripture distinguishes penalties 
against uh, for crimes that are against persons from penalties that are crimes against property. If you kill somebody, according to the law, you have to be put to death. Certain forms of sexual infidelity have to be uh, are punished with death, or at least potentially punished with death, because they're an attack on the image of God in the marriage. But crimes against property are not punished with death in the Old Testament. Crimes against property are punished by restitution. If you steal $100 from me, then you owe me that $100 back, and you have to pay an additional $100 because you're suffering the same penalty you tried to inflict on me. Double restitution is the normal rule for crimes against property. You don't, you don't get killed, as in many ancient, ancient cultures, you would get killed if you committed a crime against property, particularly if it was a crime against the property of somebody of noble status. If you get a crime against the property of a poor person, the punishment was less. If you take something from a person of noble status, it was more, and it could be death in some ancient cultures. That's not how Israel treated property. There is a distinction. And that distinction is a reasonable one, even for us today. Even though we're not under these commandments directly, restitution is an appropriate punishment for crimes against property. Instead, we send people to jail because of crimes against property. And the person who was damaged by the crime doesn't receive any restitution. He doesn't receive anything back. The person who's sent off to jail doesn't have any way, uh, doesn't, often doesn't have any way of restoring his life. It would be much more reasonable, much more just to the victim, and much more merciful to the perpetrator if restitution was the rule rather than prison. So there is a distinction to be made between crimes and sins against persons and crimes against property. But if you've ever had something stolen from you, if you've ever had somebody break into your home, then you know that that's not a real sharp distinction. If you had somebody break into your home and take things, or maybe even to break into your home and just rummage around and take nothing, you can assure yourself by saying, well, at least I wasn't home, I could have been killed. But it still feels like a violation of your person. If somebody breaks into your car at night and takes out uh, the stereo system from your car, You can reassure yourself, it was just the stereo. I can get another one. I can turn it in and get insurance. Maybe the police will catch him. But it feels like a personal violation. It feels like an attack on you because we do think of our things as kind of an extension of the people that we are. We become attached to our things. Properly so. We can become attached to our tools. Uh, The tool I use is a computer, and I'm kind of attached to my computer. If I lost it or if it was damaged, I would be brain dead. My external brain would be lost. I couldn't remember anything. You may be using other kinds of tools, but they become extensions of yourselves, and you're invested in them. Maybe you have a beloved car that you've had for the last 25 years, and you've been through a lot together, and you have a kind of almost parental affection for the car that you've had. You've been through so much. You have something new, some shiny new car, and you feel proud of it because it's something of a symbol of who you are. It expresses something of your desires and your uh, your personality. Our things are extensions of ourselves. And the Bible recognizes that, even though it makes a distinction between crimes against property and crimes against persons. 
The Bible does recognize that it's an attack on a person's property is an attack on that person. The first law, the first specific law of theft in the book of Exodus is not about the theft of property, but the theft of persons, what the Bible calls man-stealing, what we would call kidnapping. It's It's possible to commit the sin of theft, to violate the commandment, thou shalt not steal, not by taking somebody's things, but by taking them. And even if we're not actually kidnapping someone, we can still rob them of their agency, rob them of their freedom, rob them unjustly of things that they should have. We can Employers can commit theft against their employees by the way that they treat them. Sex traffickers commit theft against their uh, sex traffic uh, against their sexual work sex workers against the prostitutes that are working for them they confine them they threaten them they remove their freedom that's a violation of this commandment and it's assault on persons not just on a person's property besides the bible requires us to care for our neighbor by caring for his property according to the law if somebody uh, leaves something with you while they go out of town. Maybe they leave their dog. Maybe they leave jewels or something valuable that they don't want to leave in the house for fear of theft. You're responsible for that. You're responsible for taking care of that. And if it's lost or stolen from your house, you have to go through some kind of process. You may be able, uh, you may not owe compensation for it if it was stolen from you, but you have to prove that it was stolen from you and you didn't take it yourself. If you borrow something and it gets damaged, you're responsible to pay your neighbor that you borrowed it from for the damage, to compensate him. If you find your neighbor's animal wandering down the road, you don't just leave it. You can't say, well, I really love my neighbor, but I don't really care about his cow. I don't really care about his donkey. I'll let it just go wandering and let it go. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that. You aren't loving your neighbor if you don't take care of your neighbor's property. And you can't love your neighbor if you're committing various kinds of fraud against him. Honesty in dealings with property is part of loving your neighbor. It's uh, uh, And dishonesty, fraud, is a violation of this commandment. The Bible requires us to exchange with uh, just weights and measures. We should pay a just price for what we purchase. Our money itself should be just money. It should actually be valuable. It should have the value that it bears, the value uh, that it's supposed to have in exchanges. And if it doesn't, then that's a violation of this commandment. It's kind of a systematic form of theft. Much of our economic activity, our dealings in property, is mediated through speech. And you can't say, I'm going to be honest when I talk to my neighbor about the football game, but I'm not going to be honest with him when I'm talking with him, when I'm trying to sell him my car. If you're going to be honest and truthful, you have to be truthful with regard to property. You can't love your neighbor if you're not loving your neighbor with regard to the things that he owns. And a crime or a sin against his property, a a, a neglect of his property or an assault on his property is an assault on the person. The deepest reason why there's this connection between our persons and our property is because that's true of God himself. God owns everything, but God claims certain things as his own. 
In the Old Testament, he claimed the temple as his own. That was his house, and it was holy. And everything in it was holy. The furniture of the temple was holy. The incense of the temple was holy. The oil of the incense was holy. The people who worked in the temple were holy. Everything was holy because it belonged to the holy God. God's own holiness, which belongs to his person, extends to his stuff. And in the law, there's an analogy between God's person and his stuff, the holiness of God and his holy things, which are inviolable, and a human being's stuff and his things. There's a kind of sacredness to our property because it is an extension of ourselves. An infraction against God's property is an infraction against God himself. An infraction against our neighbor's property is an infraction against his holy things. Theft is a kind of murder. It's an assault on the image of God as much as murder is an assault on the image of God. But theft is not simply a kind of murder. The Bible teaches that theft is also a kind of practical idolatry. You might have wondered about the strange reading from the Old Testament. It did use the word steal, and I was wondering when he first started reading it, why did I choose this passage? And then I remembered, the reason I chose the passage is because the curses that are going out in Zechariah 5 are curses that are carried out against thieves and people who swear falsely. People who violate the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, and people who violate the Third Commandment, thou shalt bear thy name of thy God vainly or emptily. Those two things are connected. The third commandment, which is a form of practical idolatry, we wear God's name, and if we act uh, disobediently, then we are violating and dishonoring the name of God that we wear. That's connected with the way that the Bible treats property. We can become idolaters of property, as Jesus says in our gospel reading. We can make mammon our God instead of the Lord. Mammon is one of the dominant gods of our age. Mammon is one of the most important competitors to Jesus Christ and his Father in our world. And unlike outright theft, and unlike violence and murder, we can be idolaters of mammon and lead perfectly respectable, middle-class American lives. If our overriding goal in life is to make as much as we can, if we pursue money above all, we're not hurting anybody. We're in fact helping, well, helping people, we're helping our family. Our family gets the best schools, our family gets the best piano teachers, all kinds of things. We get it, live in a nice house. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that is part of a life that is devoted to pursuing money, pursuing wealth as the ultimate end of life, then it is idolatry. And our world is organized to entice us to worship mammon. Our public life is organized not to honor the God of Scripture, not to honor the Father, Son, and Spirit, but to honor the God mammon. What's the pitch of every presidential candidate? Every incumbent is going to say, look at the stock market. The stock market is up. Property values are up. There are more jobs. The gross domestic product is up. 
elect me. Of course, thousands and thousands of infants are being slaughtered in the womb. But elect me, because I've made the gross domestic product go up. Yes, we've enacted sexual abominations and made them the law of the land, but elect me, because I made the gross domestic product go up. Yeah, families are breaking down. Divorce rates are high. Communities are breaking down. But elect me, because I made everybody wealthier. That is a system devoted to the god mammon. I think our foreign policy is often driven by this. Why do we go and fight on the other side of the world to preserve our freedom? What does freedom mean? Freedom means the freedom to carry on the lifestyles that we currently have. Freedom means to uh, the, the, the freedom to carry on our devotion to accumulating more and more. We don't make sure the flow of oil continues, then that life is threatened. Our freedom is threatened. There are a lot of other reasons why we go to war. I'm not trying to reduce it to that. But devotion to mammon is an important part of what drives our country. We're surrounded by advertisements that are enticing us to desire the good life. And the good life is defined in terms of having this or that or this product. If, just, if we just have that product that this really cool person also has, then we also will live good lives. Our lives will be happy. Just look at them on the commercial. They're really happy. Why are they happy? Because they were able to buy this. And if we don't think those advertisements are shaping our desires, if we're not alert and defensive against those kinds of enticements, then we too will be lured into idolatries and idolatry of mammon. We need to shatter mammon in our own hearts. We need to shatter mammon in the way that we organize our families and our businesses. How do we do that? Not by renouncing ownership. Adam was made to be an owner. We are made in the image of God, and God is an owner. He's got all the stuff that there is, and we're made in His image. We're created to have things, and to enjoy things, and to enjoy God in those things. But we need to do that without idolatry. And I think the key to shattering mammon is to remember who our property actually belongs to. And it's not us. None of it belongs to us. Or it belongs to us only in the mode of gift. The way a gift belongs to you, but you know you need to use it in a way that honors the one who gave it to you. Everything we have is a gift from God. Under the law, property rights are not absolute. The land doesn't belong to the Israelites who occupy it. It belongs to Yahweh. And therefore, it has to be used in a way that honors Him. That means sending, putting the land back to its original owners every 50 years in the year of Jubilee. It means that a farmer can't maximize his harvest from a field. He has to leave the corners of his field unharvested. He can't send his people, his, his workers back to pick up all the, all the leftover stalks of grain. He has to leave those for the gleaners. He could make more. He could have a greater yield if he got, went all the way to the corners of his field. He could have more grain in his barns if he sent his, his uh, workers back to do the gleaning themselves. But he's not allowed to do that because that harvest doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, share it. 
bless others with it. That's the principle that we learn from the law. We have property, and that's good. But every little, every bit of it is from God, and every bit of it is to be used to honor Him and to pursue His kingdom and His justice. That might and does involve taking care of your family, making sure that they are comfortable and have enough to eat. It does involve enjoying the good things of life, but we have to do that recognizing that everything we own belongs ultimately to Him. Everything we own is given to us in trust so that like the gifts of the Spirit, we use them to build up the body, to edify and to build up the common good. The biblical image of charity is usually a shared meal. When you invite somebody over for dinner, you don't sit there at the table with an empty plate refusing to eat while your guests are eating. That would be uncomfortable for everyone. No, you invite somebody over for dinner, you eat, but you also share your food with your guests. That's the image of God's charity every week here at the Lord's table. It's the image of the, it's a picture that we should have of our charitable and just living with our possessions. Yes, we enjoy them, but we enjoy them as they're shared with our families, with our neighbors, with those who are in need. All of it is God's. All of it is for His purposes. All of it is to be devoted to His kingdom. We get to the really, uh, the, the depths of the, the Eighth Commandment, though, when we recognize that the Eighth Commandment really is a summary of the entirety of redemptive history. Redemptive history can be seen, the whole history of the Bible can be seen through the lens of the Eighth Commandment. God created Adam and placed him in a garden. He said, take care of it. Take dominion over the world. Take ownership of the world. That's a good thing. That's how he images God, by owning the world and using it and building it up and making it more glorious. By having things that come from God, things that he's made. And in the original creation, there is only one thing that Adam was not allowed to have. And Adam immediately became a thief. Adam's sin is lots of sins. It's idolatry. It's obviously a disobedience to God, God's direct command. It's a kind of infidelity. But Adam's sin is also theft. In all the universe, the one thing that was off limits to him that God claimed as exclusively his God's own, that's what Adam could not do without. And Adam stole God's property. And from that point on, all of Adam's children, us, are thieves. Adam was the father of a race of thieves. We steal from one another in various ways. Most of all, we steal from God by stealing ourselves from God. Those holy things in the Old Testament temples are fulfilled in the holy things that you are, that I am. We are God's holy things. We belong specially to God, and we can't use ourselves, our bodies, our property, anything we have, anything under our control, in a, in a way that's contrary to God's will for us. We steal ourselves from God. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. We belong to Him. And we need to use ourselves for His glory.
But of course the good news is that God didn't leave the Adamic race of thieves as an Adamic race of thieves. He sent a new Adam, a last Adam, an Adam who did not steal, but gave, an Adam who did not think it robbery to be equal to God, and instead of grasping and clinging on to what was rightfully his, gave it up and took on the form of the servant and submitted himself to death, a shameful death on a cross. An Adam who owed nothing and took our debt and repaid our debt in his death and in his life. And through that last Adam, who undoes the theft of the first Adam, God is remaking us. His spirit, the spirit of that last Adam has been given to us. So that as Paul says in our epistle reading, let those who steal, steal no longer, but rather let them labor, labor, working with their hands so that they have something to share with one another. Jesus, by his spirit, is remaking us uh, from the image of the first Adam, a thief, into the image of the last Adam, who gives. Thou shalt not steal is ultimately, like the rest of the ten words, is ultimately a character description of Jesus. And obeying this commandment is not obeying some foreign word from God the Father. Obeying this commandment is obeying Jesus' summons, Jesus' summons to follow Him. It's obedience to the Gospel, to follow Jesus, to imitate His labor, and to imitate His self-gift. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He took on Himself the burden of our sin, that He repaid the debt that we owed. But though He was rich, He became poor that we, so that we might share in Your riches. We pray that you, would call, uh, that you would enable us by Your Spirit to follow Him, that we would not be thieves like our first father, but that we would be self-giving like our brother Jesus and so bring glory to you, and so build up one another. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.